HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. Today, I'm coming to you from the West Coast where it's cold and rainy. We had a very successful farm hack event at UC Davis, or actually at the Glide Ranch, which is just down the road. Um, and I'm speaking today with Tammy Horn, who's coming to us from Kentucky. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Severin. Hi there. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate having a chance to to touch base with you. Yeah, I'm. Um, I've been a huge admirer of yours from afar, and then I saw you had written this book, and um, I'm really excited to have other people hear about the work that you're doing, uh, restoring land that is very degraded. I wonder if you could just give a, a brief um, a brief introduction to the work that you're engaged in. Sure. So since 2008, I work with surface mine companies in eastern Kentucky, and I do two things. I I, um, have pollinator habitat planted as part of reclamation, and so we try to get Appalachian native trees and wildflowers back on surface mine sites. And then the second thing that I do is bring honeybees onto surface mine sites and have workshops and um, do some research if I have funding, and if I don't have funding, then I do economic development. Uh, so we're gearing up for a bee school in January. Uh, but uh, I, those are the two big hats that I wear, and then and then I wear lots of little hats in addition to making those two happen. So um, the the major point is that the mines. Once they've taken away the mountain, then they kind of smoothen the land 
And um, often what I learned from you was that they're crushing the land or compacting the land um, to create uh, kind of an economically viable platform for economic development. Is what, But you're working to initiate the redevelopment of, of native forest landscape by using these pollinator species as kind of um, pioneers. And the question, is that, is that basically over, is that the um, underlying merit message there? For the most part, that is, yes. Um, I don't want to, to leave your listeners with the perception that that all of this is becoming level because if we're going to plant trees, trees grow better on slopes. So so when coal companies volunteer to do to work with me, we are creating we're getting the contour back. So that's a big that's a big plus and we're not compacting nearly as much. But the federal government has concerns about flooding and erosion. And so they're always going to, you know, there'll probably always be a little bit of compaction. Uh, and then, of course, planting trees helps with the erosion. And both of, you know, the trees really help, obviously, provide nectar and pollen for our bees. So, yes, yes, you do, you, you do have it right. Well, and um, I can only imagine that bringing the bees out there um, where they wouldn't otherwise be can help get the pastures and meadows established as you're reseeding behind the mines. Is that Absolutely. noticeable? Like, do you track that? So <clears throat> I haven't had the research funds to, to be able to track that in any meaningful way, uh, but we can tell you that we've planted, you know, Good thousand, two thousand acres worth of trees and wildflowers, and it, and it remains to be seen what the how the bees have increased the pollinator mediation is what that's called or seed set. Um, I wish that I could get a grant and make that happen, um, but but it just hasn't happened right now given the very tough climate that it is for get, getting any grants, frankly. Um, but but my latest grant is to also collect and identify native bees. Uh, one of the things I had been worried about is when I bring 20 hives onto a surface mine site that I'm actually making it more difficult for native bees to get reestablished because, you know, I was afraid that there would be too much competition for flowers and in 2011, uh, an undergraduate and I collected, you know, 600 individual native bees, and that gave me a, a, an inkling that that they weren't being crowded out to the extent that I was afraid that they were. So my latest grant will allow me for the next two years to collect and identify natives, just to just to get a, a clearer picture of what's going on with the 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 social honeybees and the native you know solitary pollinators so that's my new that's my new thing lately wow that's fun the, it's a, it, the, it is a um, challenge every single year changes because the grants change so i never have an opportunity to really kind of specialize and get to know some of these questions I would like to have the answers to. But 
by the same time, you know, by the same token, I do get to kind of turn my, I get Polaroid snapshots of things that are going on on these surface mine sites that I think are really important contributions for people further down the line. So you just finished writing a beautiful book um, about your about your experience with the bees and kind of your vision for the roles of the bees uh, uh, as a partner in reclamation and as a partner in agriculture. Um, what's been the reaction to your What's been the reaction to your book and and what have what where where have you been able to go and with whom have you been able to talk? Um, to well, compare your so work have, with others. I have two books out. The Bees in America book came out in 2005. I think the one that you're referring to is my is my Women and Bees book. It's called Beeconomy, how bees and women shape, uh, tell us about global markets. And I didn't have a hand in the title of my second book, but my second book is international. Um, I, it's, it's arranged according to, chat, to continents. Uh, I visited five different continents and interviewing women beekeepers every single, you know, every single step of the way. And I, of, of the two books, The Economy, as I said, that's my second book. That's the one that's just released. It's, it is the most eccentric thing I've ever written. And it's also my favorite thing that I've ever written um, because the the global markets are changing so quickly, and women have have been beekeepers for you know for a thousand years. Uh, so to be able to visit some of these ancient places and 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 to to get in touch with local beekeepers and how they manage to create a way for themselves. I'm thinking of um, the Beekeeping Women's Co-op in Mexicali. Uh, That's the one that comes most prominently to mind because these women work together as a group, and each woman has her own color to paint her own hives. So if, if a new woman joins, then they'll either make a split of a hive or they'll catch a swarm, and then she gets to choose her own color. And and I find this I find this really amazing how how well they've been able to work out a plan to work together as a collective unit. So um, I'm I'm hopeful that we in the United States can take some some tips from from this particular co-op and and maybe more women will be likely to work together here in the states. Have you had um, have you had uh, some feedback? And you put the signal out into the world of looking of using the bees and the colony bees and the cooperative enterprise model as a as a principle. And um, are you hearing from people to 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 say yes? We are also we are also um, thinking along these lines. I I get nibbles every now and then. People the people who like the economy book really love it. Uh, as I said, it's a it's it's a more it's a different constructed book compared to Bees in America, which was very, you know, the the Bees in America book was a straight up history, very linear, very chronological. 
you know, we start in the 1600s and and we bring it up to today. And the bees in the the bees in America book is also a very pretty book. It's it's got a beautiful cover and it's it's like kind of seeing melted butter. You just it's just warm and and beautiful and and it's it's not challenging. Now my second book is challenging, but the people who get it and men men love it. I mean, I was surprised by the number of males who have who have checked in, who have who've gotten it for their wives or for a family member who is a beekeeper. But that extra step that you're talking about uh, of creating a co-op, I haven't been overwhelmed by people wanting to start a co-op. They, I haven't gotten that reaction just yet. But you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes it takes an idea a while to plant, you know, for for that seed to grow. So I'm not. And I'm working on my third book, which will be the last stage of the bee trilogy, and that will be all about bees and trees. That's you know the the, the third book will complete basically the past, present, and future of 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 bees as as I see it through the eyes of a hard-headed hillbilly. <laughs> well, and so the hard-headed hard-headed hillbilly that you um that you are driving up there to visit your bees in the middle of these moonscapes. Um, I wonder if you could just kind of describe to people, I got to come and visit and, and film there, but, you know, it sounds very lovely planting bees and planting meadows and post-coal mine, but can you explain a little bit, like, the politics and the landscape that you have to pass through? And, and maybe a little bit also, you know, it seems like a lot of the activity that's not about coal mining in in that part of the world is kind of against coal mining and making the decision as you are to be a uh, part of the cleanup crew or, or, you know, negotiating with the mines to have access to support life on the other side of their operations. How do you, how do you approach that and, and, and describe what it's like? Well, that's a that I don't that's a complicated set of of questions, but but I'll start with this, which is that the reclamation practices of surface mining had been had been to use a lot of compaction and had also been because the ground was being compacted to use a lot of of non-native fescues with the idea that, you know, Again, according to the federal surface mining laws, coal companies needed to contain flooding and erosion. So it seemed like the way to control flooding was to compact the ground, and the way to control erosion was to plant something that would be quickly growing, and that was, you know, that was your non-native fescues. And and when I saw this in 2006, I was the National Endowment of Humanities Chair of Appalachian Studies. And and it seemed to me that this was one aspect of things that I could change. If and, and this was exactly when colony collapse disorder was beginning to have a name and have a media presence. And so I I, um, I approached some coal companies and working with some Department of Forest of um, UK forestry officials, we 
we began to develop a plan where instead of planting the non-native fescues, coal companies could plant wildflowers. Now, reclamation is always it is is it's always a, a a controversial, volatile subject um, because, at least in my area of the world, there you know most of us tend to simplify things with either ors. You're either coal mine, you're either for coal mines, or you're against coal mines. You're either for the environment or you're against the environment. And one of the things that I tried to do when I started the the Coal Country Bee Works is the name of my project is I really tried to focus on the bees and to take that either or out of the bees, that basically if the coal companies would plant enough food for the bees, that to me was where I could begin to to, to set a pattern in place, a best management practice that other coal companies could use. And we may not be able to deal with all of the issues that that come out of coal mining, but we could at least work on that one because at least, as I said, in eastern Kentucky, water quality tends to be the issue that really sets off these volatile disagreements, as as well it should. But it's not the only environmental problem. And and the way that I see it, we're losing one in every three beehives every single year across the nation. And even if we were to quit surface mining tomorrow, we would still lose one in every three beehives. And and that's as much because, you know, we haven't regulated pesticide use at all. And so, you know, one of the few places that we have left where bees are safe are the forests. I mean, that is the word out among commercial beekeepers now is get your get your bees to the woods. And so, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is to make sure that we have those woods for them to get their bees to. So that's what I focus on. I focus on the long-term view of what I'm doing. That's um, that's um, a beautiful answer. I um, I I think I think that using the bee as your as your protagonist and designing your Designing your activities around what the bee needs is a very could be a very strong principle for a lot of us. And I know um, just from the stories of many people that I spend time around that that's kind of the same pattern that happens whenever you commit to a place. Also, is then all the relationships around that place have to, you know have to become harmonious or peaceful. And that doesn't always mean seeing eye to eye, but it might mean uh, you know, smiling or you know, being being polite and um, respectful. So it's a good lesson, I think, for a lot of us. Well, it's you know, I, I live in a place that that thinks that the EPA has declared a war on coal, and there are bumper stickers and and everything that proclaim you know that we are in a war on coal, and in. You know that. You know we'll put that aside for a second. Uh, what I see happening is that both environmentalists and coal company owners, miners, executives, they all love the honeybees. I mean, there isn't a single person that doesn't ask how the hives are doing, 
doesn't have a story about, you know, a relative who used to be a beekeeper or picking up some honey at the farmer's market. I mean, any time I'm on site, you know, I, I'm i talking bees with somebody. Um, and so it becomes a way of reestablishing conversations in some of these communities where the conversations have become quite toxic. And, and and as I said, as long as I keep my focus on the bees, you know, that's a really good thing to have happen is to is to help the relations between the community heal as as much as I, you know, can let the the land heal. Uh I, I have a mission statement for Coal Country Bee Works and that is economic diversity depends upon landscape diversity. Not not the other way around. Uh, I think sometimes a lot of places, you know, want to say that they want economic diversity, but they don't want to look at their land. And and in the Appalachian Forest, we have an amazing mesophytic forest system that was, you know, has this neotropical arrangement of trees and flowers, uh, and you know, we have to get that back. And you know, using the bees to leverage that is my particular way of going about that. So your your big project is around is surrounding surrounding the bee and, and and emanating from the bee out into a landscape diversification strategy that can lead to an economic diversification strategy that can be um that can start to hold out more jobs and opportunities for human the human species as well. What are you yeah, what are you okay. looking at in your next kind of this next phase of work as you're writing this book about the trees and you're thinking about the reclamation ahead other than your own um direct plantings what are some other ways that people that you're, or are you finding other ways that people are able to to build projects or businesses around forest planting and and kind of landscape diversification in general? Well, 2013 will go down in history as the year that the U.S. honey production was the absolute lowest. I mean, and again, I'm I'm starting with a broad general stroke here, but but we have never Hello? had a year where honey production was so low. <laughs> so to offset that, you know, to offset that low production, you know, what we end up doing is importing honey from from, from you know Asia and Argentina. Uh, we import sixty percent of our honey to meet our domestic honey needs. Uh, some of that honey has been contaminated with chloramphenicol, which is a factor in causing leukemia. Uh, and so what I'm hopeful in this next, you know, I, I'm meeting my five-year goal in some ways, which is to say that, you know, I have six bee yards now on surface mine sites. I do a bee school every single January where we routinely, you know, get 200 people showing up, 150 people showing up, uh, so that they can become beekeepers. And then my next five years, I really do want to look at this idea of doing beekeeping women's co-ops or just 
beekeeping cooperatives. Um, I hope to effect some change in the farm bill that's being discussed right now so that we can get more subsidies for beekeepers because, you know, most of our U.S. farm subsidies go to five main crops like corn and soybeans and rice. But beekeepers are, are left out of that. They're totally left out of that. So, but that starts with people, right, because that's a political issue. And I want to start working with, a, you know, trying to create a women's co-op and seeing what that looks like and finding a long-term investor to do that. And, you know, I don't know if your listeners will happen to be east of the Mississippi River in 2014, but Eastern Kentucky University will be the host site for a major conference in July. That's Eastern Apiculture Society Conference, and it is always one of the big conferences. I mean, it routinely receives 700, 800 attendees, and, um, and I'm using that conference as a way to kick off interest to kick off collaboratives and cooperatives. So for those of you who are interested, uh, you can go to www.easternapiculture.org to learn more about that uh, because I am president of that association. And so I have plenty to do. That that third book isn't 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 going to press anytime soon, I'm afraid. Plenty to do is right. <laughs> I, yeah, I really desperately wish I could. <laughs> but but it will it it will get written. Well, this is the um the uh insight that you're bringing to this work and um the the long time scale that you're thinking across is a good lesson to a lot of us as we are, you know, trying to push a needle, or what the people are always saying, push the needle. I don't like that machine machine metaphor, but, you know, that anything worth doing might just take more than your own lifetime. And um, I wanted to just quickly, as a kind of final um, final question, ask you to explain a little bit. You talked about um, hope without guarantees in your, in your little write-up there. Could you explain maybe a little bit... Um, what you mean by that? Well, when I started Cold Country Bee Works, I had I had been an English professor. Um, I mean, I, I was born in Harlan County, so I am I, I, I was I was the NEH chair of Appalachian Studies, but my background was always in the humanities. <clears throat> I, I hated math and science. I mean, I was determined to choose a career where I'd never have to use math or science. But when I saw these large, these large acreages, 3,000 acres of non-native fescues, I knew that I could help get flowers in those very same places. And so the irony is, is that I chose my first career based on what I didn't want to do. I chose my second career based very much on what I want to do and what I love to do. And of course, now I use math and science every day. And each of my coal company partners and I deliberately chose to be in a partnership for 10 years if we could, if we could um, because the trees are going to need that much time to mature, right? 
and every year, of course, we have we as people have matured too in different ways. Um, and and so you know we're kind of in the middle of this 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 major transition, and and the and the beak the the beak industry continues to face declines. The coal industry has suffered major declines in production too. I mean, as natural gas and the Marcellus shale becomes, you know, much more developed with fracking. Um, you know, the coal companies, one coal company that I used to work with is no longer. Uh, another coal company just laid off 700 people this year. Um, this is so, so it has changed quite rapidly. Um, and, and, and my long-term view of, of the difference between surface mining and fracking is that at least as an industry, the coal companies have gotten better at reclamation. I mean, you know, now there were mistakes made in the 70s and the 80s, but but every year we seem to get a little bit better at the reclamation process. I'm, I'm not so sure with fracking that we can say that. I mean, I think that there are a lot of unknowns there with that particular that particular industry. So, you know, beekeeping, and, and 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 as far as I'm concerned, at the bottom of this is, you know, this whole energy crisis and fuel crisis is is finally the most important fuel, which is food, right? And and the bees are absolutely essential in that production, in our food production. So, um, so you have to take a long-term view of things. Uh, the USDA is pushing farmers to, to, you know, to produce 30% more than what they're what they're doing right now, um, and 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 they're going to have to have bees if they're going to be able to, to to meet those goals. But with the with the way that I see the lack of regulation on pesticides going, you know, things are, things are going to have to change, and they're going to have to change starting with that farm bill. It seems. Well, we don't have we don't have more time to go into depth on what other countries around the world are doing in terms of supporting pollinator health and supporting pollinator habitat and regulating around these synthetic nicotinoids and and understanding the critical role that the pollinators play in the agricultural landscape. But there are lessons. Maybe we can rejoin this topic some other time because I think. <laughs> It would do that, us, that it would serve us well as you're as you are tracking the bee and 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 organizing your whole activism and and work around the bee. For many of us who are interested in you know beginning farmer issues and rebuilding regional food systems and infrastructure and land health and habitat and diversifying the landscape back to support a whole host of different jobs and and creatures. Um, for us to look outside our context and outside our familiarity um, and, you know, yes, voice up um, to defend small farmers against, you know, food safety czar, uh, food safety czar who used to work for Monsanto making a new food safety rule, but but also being a lot more proactive and um, um, as you have been in really thinking outside the box and thinking outside the sphere of our own kind of comfort and immediate circle to track 
to track progress on a larger scale for, for the issues that are that really underlie our future prosperity. So we'll get there. <laughs> we will, and we have to keep talking, and we have to keep talking to each other and listening to each other. And and listening to listening to our surroundings, our environment, our bees. You know, they're the they're the 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 best spokes spokespersons, spokespeople that we have on these on these things. Well, to the to the bees to the bees as our spokespeople. I thank you, Tammy Horn, so much. Her books are available on the internet. Um, the bee economy is really exciting. Um, and I hope you guys will check that out. This um, this coming weekend, there's another event to know about. We're having a cookout at Sunnyside Organic Nursery in Richmond, California. If you're interested to come, we'll be having organic hamburgers from Mindful Meat and talking about um, urban soil reclamation and um, citizen-based um, decontamination and orchard uh, works. Um, email farmer at thegreenhorns.net to get an invitation. That's this Saturday in Richmond, California. I hope to see you there. Thank you, Tammy. Talk to you again soon, I hope. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on your program. Bye-bye. the good work. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>